0: I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. Perchance you saw coverage concerning one of Time Magazine's favorite people, named Man of the Year at least once, Vladimir Putin of the Russian Federation. Vladimir Putin, president for life, in essence, over there, in charge of that authoritarian regime. Not communist, mind you. Not even eh, socialist, maybe. But totalitarian, for all intents and purposes. He was warning the United States, not Iran. He was warning the United States of America, that war between the United States of America and the Islamist regime of Iran would be catastrophic, would be a catastrophe. Well, I was a bit... uh, Bemused, perhaps, at that, at the disingenuous Vladimir Putin here, warning of this, that it would be catastrophic, be a catastrophe, a catastrophe for whom, I would ask, because (laughs) the thing is, if it turned out to be catastrophic for the United States of America, that would be good in his eyes, (laughs) all right, so... It seems to be a one-way street here it seems to be concerning Iran but the direct quote of president for life Putin is quote it would be a catastrophe for the region at the very minimum because it will lead to an increase of violence and potential increase in refugees from the region end quote but he also went on to say, quote, again, concerning it being a catastrophe, also for those who would attempt it, who would attempt warfare between U.S. and Iran, it could have possibly sad consequences, end quote. Possibly sad consequences for the U.S. and for Iran. Possibly sad No. When there is war, there are terrible consequences. There are no exceptions to that. But that's not to say that it's never necessary. But so what is spurring these concerns of war, of imminent war between the United States of America and the Islamist regime Of Iran. Yes, the Islamist regime of Iran did shoot down an unmanned drone, which that is the definition of drone, but that it is unmanned, and did so over international waters in an unprovoked attack. Now, Iran's take on that is just a wee bit different. They say that it was actually over, above Iran itself, not waters and not international waters, but instead over Iranian territory. And that it was a provocative, warmongering act by the United States of America. And it was just protecting its sovereignty and so forth. Yes. Well, the exact location of where this took place. I have not seen it narrowed down, specified, except it seems to be in the area of the Strait of Hormuz, which is a strait that adjoins the Gulf of Oman. The Gulf of Oman, where tankers... Huge cargo ships have been being attacked by Iran, ostensibly by some other actor, because there certainly are some others in the immediate vicinity, but it has been alleged by the Trump administration that these attacks were, in fact, committed by Iran. And I happen to think they probably have pretty good intelligence, information, military intelligence to that effect. And it's the obvious choice anyway. But this area between the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea, it is an area of great strategic importance. It has been for oh so long now in modern times control of it deemed essential, of greatest importance, as it was going back to World War II. But, this matter of war, that shooting down an unmanned, call it what you will, (laughs) you know, it's, call it a vehicle (laughs) in air, or whatever you want to call it, it's It's a glorified toy, a drone. I don't mean that it's used for playful purposes. But nonetheless, I mean, the first drones, you're talking about toy-like items. But they've grown and grown. And this was the largest size drone that the United States of America has and capable of operating it 10 miles above the Earth's surface. It obviously was much, much, much closer to Earth's surface when it was shot down by a surface-to-air missile by the Iranian Republican Guard or what have you. Well, but again, let's go back to Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin, his concerns for us, concerns that war will break out, concerns... That it will be catastrophic. It will cause catastrophic loss of life. It will cause massive refugee crisis. Flooding into other adjoining, bordering nations. You know, akin like to Russia and so forth. Terrible things like this. And cause sad, sad uh, events for the parties directly involved. Well, so Vladimir Putin's very concerned. And various different political leaders here in the United States of America are greatly concerned, greatly alarmed, uh, in many instances, greatly incensed about this and insistent that this should trigger a military response, which then likely (laughs) would be... Impetus into war. But think about this by contrast, just for a moment, if you're thinking that this would be a good idea to strike Iran for this reason. There are plenty of reasons (laughs) to strike the Iranian Islamist regime, plenty, but not this. And the president. Whether these are his thoughts or those of his advisors, I have to agree with that this matter of this particular shoot down of this drone is not remotely sufficient cause for entering into war. It isn't. It isn't remotely. What about the attacks on the tankers? That's a little bit more and so forth, but there are a great many other things, and he specified nuclear arms would be such a reason, that he absolutely would go to war with Iran over their development of nuclear weapons. But let's just look at this for a moment. Tiny, tiny Israel... Israel surrounded by enemies, surrounded by Islamist regimes, Egypt, United States' most favored nation, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, to name a few. And then, of course, there's Iraq, free, independent Iraq, and there's Turkey. And then in the offing, there is Iran. And then beyond that, the Soviet Union. There, of course, are others as well, such as Libya and what have you. But confining ourselves to these, Iran's terrorist organization, Hezbollah, that's right, it is a terrorist organization of the Iran Islamist regime. They run it. They control it. They operate it, as they have going back to when Ronald Reagan was president. But I'm not going to go there right now. But they have been raining down terror on Israel for decades and decades and decades. And Israel finally, officially claimed the Golan Heights as Israeli territory, which historically it was. They finally did that because of the necessity to do so, because Iran was enabling Hezbollah to set up battlefronts in the Golan Heights to rain down terror and death in the form of missiles into tiny Israel. Meanwhile, Hamas in Gaza doing the same, has been doing the same. That's right. We're talking about hundreds, thousands of rockets and missiles and mortars being sent, sent with love, you know, with loving concern, like Vladimir Putin's loving concern here, being shot into Israel at civilians, at civilian installations as well as military, as well as civilian soldiers. That has been going on. That is an active Situation. You could liken it to an active shooter situation. This is ongoing. You could say it's fluid, all right? It's dynamic. It continues to this day, as well as myriad tunnels dug under the borders to be used by, that are used by, Islamist terrorists to infiltrate Israel and carry out terrorist attacks. But, of course, the world, including the United States of America, the Western world, France, Germany, UK, all of the nations of the European Union. Yes, Britain may be exiting that, but all of the nations of the European Union and those nations which are not in the European Union, but all of the nations of the wonderful North American, I keep saying North American, pardon me, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, all of the nations of NATO, all of those enlightened peoples, as well as the United States of America, we insist that Israel— not go to war against (laughs) these that are continually bombarding Israel, endangering lives of Israelis, murdering Israeli people. No, you can't go to war. (laughs) Tiny Israel, besieged Israel, cannot go to war. But the United States of America, if we have An unmanned drone, and they do use those terms together. I know, again, it seems redundant, but an unmanned drone is shot down, a very, very, very expensive piece of military hardware, mind you, but that is shot down, and that should result in full scale war. I have a problem with that, (laughs) all right? Uh, Meanwhile, Israel manages to fend off these wonderful neighbors it has while the world community at large, the enlightened peoples of the world, insist that Israel make concession after concession, weaken itself and weaken itself, give up territory and give up more territory. To those who are bent on the murderous annihilation of the people of Israel that are not Muslims. But just an interesting contrast, I think, one that perhaps we should consider. Meanwhile, again, speaking of peace-loving, pacifist Vladimir Putin, perhaps you saw that, uh, lo and behold, this joint investigation team is issuing international arrest warrants for three Russians, one Ukrainian who was collaborating with Vladimir Putin's Russian Federation. And for what? None other than the shootdown of Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, which was shot down over eastern Ukraine, which resulted in the deaths of all aboard just too shy of 300 people. Yes. Wonderful. But while that took place... In July 2014, so five years ago, lo and behold, these arrest warrants have now been issued. And those that it is specifying happen to be high officers in the Russian. Federal Security Service, FSB, Russia's Military Intelligence Agency, GRU, and the hybrid organization of the Russian Special Forces, twinned with Russian military intelligence, Spetsnaz, GRU. The Spetsnaz group of special forces, are considered to be as outstanding as any special forces on the face of the earth. They don't get the same kind of press here in the Western world uh, that ours do, understandably. And then the last one, the Ukrainian, he led a pro-Russian separatist combat unit in Donetsk, Ukraine, in Crimea at that time in July 2014. And so they are charged with causing the crash of MH17, leading to the death of all the people on board and murdering 298 passengers of said flight. Yes, but what's fascinating is they admit that, well, no, none of them actually shot the missile, the rocket. No, but they are suspected of obtaining the BUK book missile, and it has been confirmed that a missile fired from a launcher belonging to the Russian Federation's 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade was responsible. Well, this JIT, what is it? It's made up of five nations, including wonderful Netherlands, Ukraine, Belgium, Australia, and Malaysia. Malaysia. So... But what's fascinating, again, none of them is thought to be guilty of actually launching the missile. But they are responsible for it. They are not accused of firing the missile, but are just as punishable as the person who committed the crime. What about those who gave them their orders, These are high-ranking officers in the military intelligence community of the Russian Federation, all of which reports directly, ultimately, to Vladimir Putin. What the intelligence community, in the form of the FSB, formerly KGB, and the GRU, do, and the Spetsnaz GRU, as an extension of the GRU, what they do all comes from the top. This is centralized command. All right? This is not delegated out and out and out. This is centralized, as it was under the Soviet Union. And as dear old Vladimir was in charge of the KGB FSB, now, at one time, he has retained total control. Shocker there. They put him in power. They enabled him to obtain power and have enabled him to keep power, to retain power. So here is this man who is so concerned that he issues this warning, this compassionate, caring warning to the United States of America and to the free world and to Iran, ostensibly, that please don't go to war. It's a terrible thing. It will be a catastrophe. No. (laughs) What is his motivation other than to show the world how much he cares? Which it could be as simple as that. Just to exert his leadership. Just to assert it. Just to impress the world that this is a man who really cares, a a great leader and compassionate and that. That's possible, (laughs) all right? That is possible. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, but that is possible. I think rather it has to do with the fact that this would be harmful to Russia for Iran to be destroyed and or Iran less than destroyed to be taken out of his orbit of control, to be wrested from the current regime and not to be able to be used and exploited by Vladimir Putin. But who can say? Well, perhaps one of these outstanding, outstanding Democrat candidates for president Now, various different things have been said concerning Joe Biden. Oh, the man is too old, right? He's just too old. And he's a white man. I mean, really, (laughs) that's about as bad as it gets, right? An old white man. I'm serious. That is just, that is just, oh, that should be disqualification right there. An old white man. But you know what? I mean, he's pretty well preserved. You take a look at Joe. Uh, He is like a movie actor (laughs) as far as for his age. Yes, I think it has something to do with the kind of life that he has lived, and I'm not talking about clean living here. I'm talking about where Hollywood actors typically, when they're not actively involved in shooting a film, they are involved in taking care of themselves, of their looks, of their body. That is first and foremost. And Joe Biden, of course, going back to the hair plugs light years ago and everything. Anyway, he naturally good-looking guy, and he has taken good care of himself, it looks. So, he looks younger than his years, but still an old white guy. Golly. Well, thankfully for those hair plugs, that he does not look like an old, bald white guy. That would be bad. <laughs> no offense, Bernie. But... Anyway, he is the front runner by a bunch. Now, various different experts are opining that, yes, but his campaign will, you know, uh, it, it will lose steam along the way because of, uh, obviously, because of his age, right? It's going to lose steam. Really? Come on. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons to be opposed to Joe Biden, but his age is not one of them any more than was true with regard to Ronald Reagan. But currently he is seemingly running away from the pack, and the only one that, the one that is closest, not maintaining contact, but the one that is closest is Bernie Sanders, far behind, and then Elizabeth Warren behind him, and, and on it goes. But Joe Biden, you know, oh, let me stop here for one minute. Just say this, I'm Brad Thomas, and whatever is right and true and good in this program is thanks to my Lord and God and His Holy Son, Jesus Christ. Whatever is lacking, erring, deficient, that is due to me, that is on me. So, if you care to blame this program after all is said and done, blame me, all right? If you're blaming it for deficiencies, if you're blaming it because of what's right about it, well, then you can go ahead and blame God. But anyway, dear Joe, Joe, he, he uh he comes across in various different ways. He has you know, it's like a a shapeshifter, right? <laughs> Is that he can be very you know, jovial and folksy seeming and very, very, very uh, I would say disturbingly touchy-feely, with lovely members of the fairer sex. Yes, he seems to limit it to them. Strangely enough, uh, younger women, very attractive women, and so forth. So, But he also has another side to him, and that is the bare-knuckle street brawler joke. Crude crass, rough and tumble Joe Biden and any of these opponents of his that think he is something less than rough and tough. I think they've got another thing coming. It's not a side he necessarily wants to show very much to the general population. I mean, he will just to show them that he's strong, strong enough to be a strong president. But it certainly is not the principle Uh, picture we're going to get of Joe. No. But just think, now who should he select as his vice presidential running mate? Isn't it a little early to talk about that? My word, I mean, we're a year away from heading into the general election campaign with a head full of steam, right? A year away. We're nearing the end of June here in 2019. So it's practically a year away and traditionally the front runners not to be confused with with various different wannabes but the front runners typically do not name their running mates until at their party's convention or immediately prior to it normally not before that now, we do have contenders, regardless how, how small their following may be, we do have contenders naming their running mates in order to strengthen their platform, in order to strengthen their chances of drawing various different you know, portions of the demographic landscape out there to their cause. Yes, their cause, which first and foremost is getting elected (laughs) president. But so we will see that kind of thing going on. But here we have an old white man, good looking, fit, healthy, old white man, relatively. I'm not calling him names, but he is an older, you could say statesman. Let's call him a statesman. He's not, but let's call him that just because it has such a nice ring to it. So what should he be looking for in a running mate? Do you remember John McCain? John McCain, yes. Let's get a young, vibrant, dynamic, charismatic woman as the running mate. I guarantee you that is absolutely being floated (laughs) among his campaign staff, positively. And others will be saying that's not enough. If our VP candidate is a woman, she must be a woman of color or a lesbian woman or a lesbian woman of color, you know, and that sort of thing, or a vet, a veteran, right? And then others will be saying, well, no, that will be seen perhaps as being a little bit radical, you know, uh, unsettling by certain segments of the of our electorate, of our base, uh, n- <laughs> Portions of our base, not our whole base, but, but still portions that are significant. So instead of that, let's just select a VP candidate that, you know, touches on one or two of these things, but not all three. All right. So, okay, if it's going to be a homosexual, a sodomite, let's not have it be a woman. Let's have it be a man. Oh my! Oh, that would that would really be a, l- a lot more comforting, wouldn't it? So, of course, you know, but not a white man, you know. Uh, you know, is there is there a man of color out there somewhere that we could you know select? So, if you're going to select a white man, yes, he he needs to be like that. He needs to be a, a boot edge edge. But on the other side, it could be a woman. Could be a a white woman because of being a woman, a minority. How did they come to be a minority? Women. I mean, they actually (laughs) outnumber men, don't they? But they're a minority. So uh, possibly we could go with a white woman. But, you know, we have such stellar candidates. Uh, That are not. How about a woman of color? I think I think that would be outstanding dynamic. But what I would say to Joe is regardless what all of your handlers are saying what kind of polling they're doing concerning this their focus groups that are telling you yay and nay on these various potential candidates I'd say no. I'd say spit in their eye, forget what your handlers are saying, and do something bold and courageous, right? Let's have it be like Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, grumpy old guys. Let's have John Kerry as the vice presidential running mate. Why not? Why not John Kerry? Isn't he due just like you are? I mean, you two that, you know, run for president, run for president, run for president. Instead of one of these that is running for president the first chance that they've gotten in terms of meeting the age requirement of 35 years of age, why don't we have somebody who's paid their dues, you know, (laughs) paid their dues, been being enriched in the Senate for, ooh, I don't know, 30 years or something, and who's been living like a king or prince royalty here in the United States of America. Let's go with John Kerry. Isn't he a reasonable choice? Joe and John, John and Joe. I mean, so presidential, such gravitas, right? What could be better than that? Of course, they are, unfortunately, both from the same part of the country, Delaware and Massachusetts, the Northeast and New England. However, of course, they both spend a lot of time in Washington, D.C., as is true with all of the senators and congressmen and women. They all spend a lot of time inside the beltway. But, anyway, just just for chuckles, how about John Kerry? And then, if something should befall you, Joe, then we have a president-ready vice president to step in and take over. How about them apples, huh? Wouldn't that be great? But, <laughs> And the thing is, with you being the front man, oops, I shouldn't say that. That implies that you are the lesser. With you being the top dog, with you being the lead candidate, it helps to soften the arrogancy of John Kerry. He is a painfully arrogant Man, <laughs> and that comes through when he runs for president. So as vice president, you know, your handlers and whatever, they can, they can work with him. And, and you can pair him up with this one, that one, the other one. And then you can load your cabinet with women, with women of color, with lesbian women, with homosexual men, sodomite males, sodomite females, you can load it up. You know, instead of having a, a group of individuals as disparate as a, a dwarf, a midget, uh, a man who has lost his arms and legs serving his country, a blind person, a deaf person, instead of that, forget those kinds of things and let's go for... Every race out there and every religion. Let's, let's have a lot of Muslims on the cabinet. And uh, again, of these, this variety of people, you can do that. And that will help counterbalance the white old men. And you might say, well, wait a minute. You don't select your cabinet until you're elected. No, no, no. Throw that playbook away. Name them Now. Offer these positions to them now. And that way you can thin the herd of presidential candidates while you're at it, too. Uh, but I want credit for this. If you do this, I want to receive credit for the, for these brilliant ideas. So, in any case, speaking of Joe Biden, Joe Biden, he does have a habit of sticking one of his feet in his mouth, you know, with a certain amount of regularity. He and John both do that. But uh, they are by no means the only political leaders of note of past years that have been extremely uh, prone to that. But perhaps you saw, speaking of the contenders, contenders of color, Senator Cory Booker booking it to the White House from New Jersey and Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris as I prefer Kamala Harris of California former Attorney General out there they have stated that Joe Biden needs to apologize apologize to the nation for this terrible egregious thing that he did regarding speaking about his having worked with senators who were segregationists in years gone by that he worked with these people oh my gosh he worked with them how how terrible is that yes with ones such as Senator James Eastland, Democrat, Mississippi, and Herman Talmadge, Democrat, Georgia. Democrat segregationists? Who would have imagined? Oh, my word. Yes, if if you haven't heard, (laughs) the Republicans (laughs) were the anti-slavery party, but... Anyway, you know, for for the children, for the young people that haven't learned that, uh, I don't want to burst your bubble, but the Democrats were the party of slavery, the slavery party, but as compared to the Republicans. But he spoke of this. He stated that his working with these Democrat senators was evidence of his ability, his commitment to work in a civil way to get things done. That he has such temperament, that he has such vision, that he has such patience, and what have you, that... He could do this. He has done this. This is his resume. This is his experience that these young pups don't have any, any (laughs) uh, experience with and don't have any idea of the necessity for. But anyway, I would caution, I would caution Uh, Joe Biden about one thing. You know, I mean if if Vladimir Putin can caution Donald Trump, (laughs) then I think I should be allowed to caution Joe Biden about one thing, though. And that is this is that in the selection of his vice presidential candidate, while there are a number of very important considerations and then there are the run-of-the-mill considerations that are not important at all, shouldn't be important, are not worthy, are not meritorious of consideration, but nonetheless are the dominant ones. Namely, can they sell themselves, promote themselves? Can they rake in money? Can they raise money? Those are the two dominant reasons. But with VP, those are the two dominant Dominant qualities, characteristics required of a political candidate for high office when it comes to recruiting people to run for office, for Congress, for governor, for U.S. senator, for president. But when it comes to VP, while those are important, the Trump card, (laughs) uh, no pun intended, the Trump card is this is that they strengthen your campaign. They bring voters to you whom you otherwise either would not gain the support of or who are questionable. Okay? This is something that has absolutely been a first and foremost consideration time after time after time down through the years. I would urge Joe Biden to break with the past, to throw away that playbook. Why? Because there have been a number of instances down through our brief history in which a president has been assassinated and the vice president, of course, has taken over as president. Now, it has never been shown to have been (laughs) the work, if you will, of the vice president, to have the president assassinated. But neither has it really convincingly, persuasively, been shown to be otherwise. And I would just encourage and suggest, recommend to Joe Biden, that when it comes to selecting his VP, that he selects someone whom he believes he can trust, <laughs> whom he believes he can trust himself to be alone in a room with and have his back to that person, you know? Uh, not that that's a good uh, analogy or, or example, I should say there, but someone whom he believes has no axe to grind with regard to using whatever means are necessary to obtain the ultimate office here in the United States of America. But speaking of these candidates, these would-be candidates, these wannabe candidates, there is a woman. She has vast education. She attended community college for two years. She became a New York Times best-selling author, courtesy of the ultimate uber-influencer. No, not Chrissy Teigen. No, please. Oprah. Oprah made this woman. So this woman has now had... Uh, Seven New York Times bestsellers, yes. And what is this woman? She is a spiritual lecturer. Do not confuse that with Christian anything. No, please don't. So what are issues that are near and dear to her, among others? I mean, forgetting her own particular sub-agenda of the big-name issues. What are they? She is solidly behind the Green New Deal. She is all in on the Paris Climate Accords, but states that they do not go far enough. There needs to be a global push to enact... Much more robust, aggressive, aggressive goals. And that the agreements, the pacts, the treaties need to be enforceable, which they currently are not. Yes, oh, she is solidly behind the so called Equality Act. That's right. Promoting the queer agenda, the sodomite agenda. Yes. And she is 100% pro-induced abortion, pro-elective abortion. Yes. And that all attempts to curb, lessen, diminish Roe v. Wade's so-called protections for so-called abortion rights, that she will vigorously resist them. What a woman. How outstanding. Yes. But she has independently studied comparative religion, that is the great religions of the world, the false religions of the world, and philosophy, the vain philosophies of, man, of men and women. Outstanding. But... Oprah loves her, Oprah made her, Oprah launched her, Oprah puffed her, promoted her, and made her a perennial New York Times best-selling author. Now, she ran for Congress in California, she failed, but she's running for president. Meanwhile, speaking of the way things are done on the left a fellow by the name of Jackson A. Koskel, a young buck, 27 years of age. He has been sentenced to four years in prison. You know, with time off for good behavior, he'll probably be out in four months. But this fellow, interestingly enough, he was found guilty (laughs) on these five federal felony counts He could have been sentenced for 100 years in prison, 20 years each. But, no, no. He is a former U.S. Senate Democrat, U.S. Senate staff member. And he did everything in his power via hacking, stealing information, from Senate offices, after he was fired from one senator's office, did everything in his power to smear Senate senators, various Republican senators who were inclined to support Brett Kavanaugh, his nomination to the Supreme Court. So this fellow, this ideologue, You know, the end justifies the means. He engaged in this massive hacking campaign. He achieved, he accomplished the single greatest known theft of electronic media data, data if you prefer, from the United States Senate. And he posted private information about these Republican senators, their phone numbers, their, of their homes, of their residences, their home addresses, the, that sort of information, so that it could be used <laughs> by activists, all right? But he also threatened a couple staffers who saw him engaged in <laughs> breaking in, if you will, into a senator's office and gaining this information. But, again, has been sentenced to four years. I expect he'll be out in four months. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court, speaking of this Supreme Court that Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to, a couple decisions from this august body. One was that a World War I memorial, which is in the configuration of a 40-foot-tall cross, that it can remain on public land in maryland oh my what a great decision how is it possible that this got all the way to the supreme court you may ask well these are the times in which we live yes yes if the Supreme Court had decided differently. Hundreds, hundreds of war memorials that use crosses to commemorate the soldiers that have died would have been endangered, would have been removed, destroyed, so forth. But there were two justices of the Supreme Court that were dissenters they were in strong dissent, whom do you imagine they may have been? Just you know just <laughs> your best guess, drum roll, please, Ruth Bader, Ginsburg, and Sonia Sotomayor, yes, they were in dissent and. What organizations were behind this great cause attacking this memorial anyway? Well, of course, they have to have, typically, they have to have some people, not just organizations. So they had three residents and the American Humanist Association. Uh, (laughs) Yes, uh, the sharp point of this spear there for uh, atheists and agnostics. But just wonderful, outstanding, and they're based in Washington, D.C., so they didn't have far to go to make their arguments to the Supreme Court. But that will be allowed. Meanwhile, another great case by the Supreme Court is that, and again, how did this one make it there? A convicted sex offender, courtesy of his lawyer or his law team, claimed that he should not need to register as a sex offender because that was an undue delegation uh, by the legislative branch. It was an illegal uh, delegation of powers. But the Supreme Court, amazingly enough... (laughs) ruled against the fellow and his team of lawyers. Now, the United States of America is in great shape. I don't know with certainty (laughs) whether this nation will still be standing a year from now, but if it is, oh my, such exciting political things. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you.